Bibles to James chapter 4. Now, I am standing before you here this morning with kind of like an extra sense of weight and gravity on me. Um, I believe that God intends to help some of us through James chapter 4 this morning. And I also want to say this, this, this passage is extremely dense in terms of what the Lord calls us to do in it. So will you just pause and put your theological thinking caps on here this morning and really let's ask the Lord for his help. And here's the good thing, he, he wants to help us this morning. So let's just pause once again and ask God if he would draw near and show us this sin sickness that plagues us all. Would you do that with me this morning? Father, we do thank you that you are the great physician and that you delight to heal your people. I pray that in your spirit you would draw near, that you would help us to see our heart disease, and would you help us to see that in Christ, in Christ, there is hope and healing for all of us. Lord, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law? Would your spirit change us this morning by your mighty word? In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So if you're taking notes this morning, and as I have said many times, there are special crowns in heaven for those note takers. I don't have that on the Bible. I just think that's true. Um, the message today is simply called heart disease. And what we're going to do this morning is look at the diagnosis that the Bible gives of the condition of the human heart. Uh, let me begin with a illustration. How many of you have heard of bloodletting before? How many of you know what that is? Okay. Uh, back several centuries ago, there was a practice of bleeding patients out. It actually started in the 5th century B.C. And bloodletting was thought to be a helpful treatment for any number of ail ailments. Through the centuries, the practice of bleeding a patient was used to treat this. Acne, asthma, cancer, cholera, coma, convulsions, diabetes, epilepsy, gangrene, gout, herpes, indigestion, insanity, jaundice, leprosy, plague, pneumonia, scurvy, smallpox, stroke, tetanus, tuberculosis, and nearly 100 other diseases. In other words, if, if you were in doubt, cut the person and let them bleed. The practice was rooted in the idea that the body somehow built up these plethoras, plethoras is what they called them, of blood, and needed to be drained out in order to take care of the illness. This procedure actually lasted for many centuries and was still popular in the early history of the United States of America. In fact, it was during this time period that the most famous of all bloodletting cases came about in 1799, George Washington the first president of the United States developed a throat infection. His doctor, buying the conventional wisdom of the time, prescribed a treatment of bloodletting. And within 10 hours, 10 hours, get this, less than a half of a day, the surgeons drained 3.75 liters of Washington's blood. Unsurprisingly, the nation's first president died that day. 
I bring this up to emphasize the fact that there are serious ramifications when you misdiagnose and as a result, mistreat a physical ailment. That's true, right? When you misdiagnose something, it leads to mistreatment and that can lead to devastating consequences. But before we are too hard on the medical professionals of antiquity, we can be guilty of an equally serious error, namely misdiagnosing and mistreating our source, the source of our sin. In fact, it seems that human beings have been adept at this from the very beginning. Right after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the garden, God spoke to them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. God says to Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam not only tries to throw Eve under the bus, but he tries to throw God under the bus. It's not just the woman, it's the one you gave me, God. Unfortunately, then God turns to Eve and begins to talk to her and she doesn't do a lot better. Verse number 13, then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here, Adam and Eve engage in the very first game of pass the buck. And sadly, it would not be the last. In fact, all of us have probably played this game at some time or another. It seems to me that human beings have an innate aversion to taking responsibility for their sins. Can I get an amen? God essentially asked Adam and Eve, why did you eat the fruit? And they both answered with basically the same thing. It wasn't my fault. They didn't say what was to blame, but they simply said, it was not me. And that's not all. Because they misdiagnosed the problem, they also mistreated it. Immediately after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, what do they do? Genesis chapter 3, verse number 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What were they trying to accomplish here? And after they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So in order to deal with their sin... Adam and Eve have done what God have told them not to do. They blame one another for it. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. And in order to deal with it, what do they do? They go and get their needle and thread out and sew on some leaves. And then when the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe comes looking for them, what do they do? They duck into the bushes. Listen, bad diagnosis of the problem leads to bad treatment of the problem. At one level, this story is sad and tragic. It's not, at another level, it's just silly. What are they doing? They're trying to solve a deep issue by hiding in the bushes and putting fig leaves on themselves. And ever since that day, humanity has been acting just like our first parents. So we, like Adam and Eve, shift blame for our sin, blaming our peers, our parents, our environment, and even the devil for our actions. We, like Adam and Eve, sow fig leaves, making cheap justifications or flimsy excuses for our words and attitudes. 
We, like Adam and Eve, after we fail, we run to the bushes and hide, disappearing from corporate worship and keeping our distance from those who will lovingly confront us. So we do something wrong, and what is our instinct? We hide and sow fig leaves, just like Adam and Eve did. Why? It's because we misdiagnosed the primary problem with our sin. So why do we do it? We've all been in the bushes, right? Haven't we been in the bushes? Let's be honest. We've been in the bushes, right? We know where they are. Some of you are maybe in the bushes right now. We've all been there. We've all run to hide. We've all got our cheap fig leaves on. Why do we do that? Why do we act the way that we do? Why do we try to cover up our sin with things that really don't help us? Fortunately for us, I think that's exactly the question that James answered in James chapter 4 today. And even more importantly than telling us why we act like that, James gives us some hope. You see, like a skilled physician, James carefully examines why we do what we do and then plots for us a way forward, which leads us to my point this morning. It's simply this. We must properly diagnose and treat our sin. So how do we do it? Well, let's turn to the good Dr. James here and see what he says. If you're taking notes, once again, the hot heading would simply be this, an examination of sin. Number one, the diagnosis. James begins the passage with a profound question. Look at verse number one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, James is asking the $50 million question. Why do we sin against each other? What is the root cause of it all? And I want you to be warned before we go on any further. His diagnosis is not pretty. Look at verse 1 again. Is it not that your, what's it say? Okay, when I touch my ear, okay, that is a signal for you to read what's on the screen. Can you see it? Is it not this that your? Is it not this that your? Are at war within you? That word passions is translated in other, other versions with cravings, desires, or even lust. In other words, ultimately, we fight with others because we want to. That's what James is saying. You do what you do because you want to. We've all felt this, haven't we? Your coworker fails to listen to you. So you feel something begin to rise up inside of you. And you feel compelled to insert a not-so-subtle sarcastic jab. Your spouse criticizes you and, you spont- and spontaneously the hairs on the back of your neck begins to bristle. And you can't feel like you can keep the words in your mouth. It's like they've got to come out. Your friend doesn't follow through again. And so you feel the urge to let loose a lethal barrage of contempt at them. According to scripture though, it is not your boss, your coworker, your parents, or your spouse who make you fight and quarrel. It is ultimately your desires. Yes, your friend, your coworker, your spouse, your children, your circumstances may certainly tempt you, but it is you, it is your heart, it is your desires that make you do what you do. Here's one succinct way to put it. We do what we do because we want what we want. 
We do what we do because we want what we want. Then James takes the step, his argument a step further. Verse two, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and can't out attain, so you fight and quarrel. You might hear that verse and think, well, wait a second. I would never kill anyone. I would never murder them. That may be true enough. You may never, you know, physically pull a trigger or stab someone with a knife. You may never do that physically. But remember how Jesus talked about murder back in Matthew's gospel? He said this over in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. In other words, in the mind of the Savior, murder and anger flow from the same heart. The implication is simply this. We're all killers. Every single one of us. Murder and anger in the mind of the Savior flow from the same stream. And so in the Lord's mind, when we hate, when we are angry with others, it is out of a murderous heart. To paraphrase James, you want something? And someone gets in your way, and so in your heart, you kill them. And if this is not bad enough, look at verse number two. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So why not in those situations, when we're tempted to fight and quarrel, when these murderous desires are rising up in our heart, why don't in those situations we call out to God and ask for his help? Why don't we do that? And James basically says, because you're not even thinking about God. In that moment, you're behaving like an atheist. You do not have because you do not ask. God stands ready and willing to help you. God stands ready and willing to deliver you from that sin sickness in your heart. He wants to help you, but you do not have because you do not ask. Because frankly, you're not thinking about the Lord in that situation. Your heart is far from him. In essence, James is simply re-emphasizing the consistent teaching of Scripture. Go back to the words of Jesus, Matthew 15, verse 19. For from the heart comes evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and sexual immorality and theft and false testimonies and slander. You know why I do what I do? It's because there is something fundamentally flawed with my heart. The heart of my problem is the problem of my heart. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not to say that physiology or upbringing or life circumstances play no role. Obviously, these factors can tempt us gravely. They can. Like, you can be tempted by the situation in life that you're in. You can be tempted by physiological factors in your body. Those things can be tempting and they can make it really hard to do what is right. But ultimately we need to stand beside Jesus. The reason that I do what I do is what comes out of my heart. Or if you could say it this way, maybe this imagery captures it for you. Your circumstances may load the gun, but your heart always pulls the trigger. Man, you may have circumstances in your life right now that are putting a lot of bullets in the chamber, right? You may have some hard things in your life that are putting lots of bullets in your chamber and your your finger is itchy right now. 
And it would be really easy for you to let loose and let those quarrels and fights and sin just come spewing out. But ultimately, it is you that is pulling the trigger. It is not your circumstances that make you do what you do. It is your heart. How many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz before, right? Okay, very good. All right, some enthusiasm there. Great. Remember at the end of this movie, when Dorothy and her friends stand before the great and powerful Oz. And then the little dog, Toto, he scampers across the room and he gets to the curtain. And he begins to pull back the curtain and there's this little old man standing behind the curtain. And the whole time, he was the one that was the great and powerful Oz. And do you remember the line that the little man says? He says this, Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. In a sense, this is exactly what your heart does all the time. Look elsewhere. It's their fault. It's society's fault. It's my circumstances' fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my peers' fault. It's everybody's fault. Don't look here. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. He doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in your heart. And, and, and Jesus is kindly saying to us, and James is kindly saying to us, I know it's brutal. I know it's a hard truth. I know it's a difficult reality. But the reason you sin is not out there. The reason that you do what you do is in here. And as we will see, as we continue through this passage, this tough diagnosis is actual, actually a kindness of the Lord. For the Lord to point out to us that our problem is our heart is actually merciful to him. Why? Because if we do not see the depth of our problem, we will not grasp the magnitude of Christ's solution. And if you don't see that you are sick and that you are diseased, you have no need for the great physician. But when you begin to see how bad our hearts actually are, you begin to run to him. Say, oh Jesus, I need you to deliver me from this broken heart in my chest. My problem is not out there. My problem is in here and you're the only one who can help me. So what does James do next? Well, after he gives us the diagnosis, our problem is our heart. He then, like a good physician, gives us the prognosis. What's the outlook? Man, what is this going to lead to? Regrettably, for us, there's even more bad news. Not only does James diagnose our spiritual heart disease, he also lays out the prognosis, and it is grim. To show the seriousness of our condition, James draws some significantly graphic analogies. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? In other words, when we give in to our civil cravings in the mind of the Lord, it is the equivalent of spiritual adultery. As if we have chosen a lover other than God. When we chase after these sinful desires, 
We want him. We want something else other than the one who has bought us with his blood. Then in verse 11, James adds another stroke. Skip down there. It says this, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Notice this. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? When we allow our sinful desires to hold sway in our hearts and tear down others, we not only stand as judge over them, we also put ourselves above the law and the lawgiver. We're standing above God himself. In other words, we get to determine what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. Ultimately, we set ourselves up as the God of our own lives. We get to determine what we do. Not only is living by our sinful cravings adulterous, it is also idolatry. Wow. When we live by our passions, we are at odds with God. So why does James seem intent on heaping on us condemnation? Does he just want to make us feel bad? Is this just a passage where James is just kind of letting it all out? I want to just rip into people and make them feel bad because I need to yell at someone. I don't think so. I think James wants us to get a sense of our plight so that we really readily receive the treatment that he offers until sin be bitter, as Thomas Watson said, Christ will not be sweet. So I hope right now that you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not some sort of masochist, like I want you to feel uncomfortable, but I want you to feel the bitterness of our sin. Why? So that you will begin to taste the sweetness of the Savior. You know, no physician would come into a room that's worth his salt and just start sticking needles in you. If they did that, what are you going to do? You're going to resist. You're going to fight. You're going to, what are you doing? What are you doing? Get that away from me. Why are you poking and prodding on me? No, first a physician is going to say, here's the problem and it's serious. But I've got good news for you. Here's a solution and it'll take care of it. And when they do that, what? Then you, as uncomfortable as the needle may be, as unpleasant as that experience might be, what do you do? You gladly receive the treatment because you see that you have the problem. We need to see our problem clearly so that we begin to run to the Savior and say, Jesus, I need your help. So number three, what is the prescription? Our diagnosis is that our problem is the heart. The prognosis is bad. You are, you are in, a, in no good relationship with God. You are an enemy of God. You are idolatrous. You are adulterous. So how do we treat this heart disease? James offers us a prescription that can be summed up in one word. Humility. Look at verse number six. But he gives more grace. Whew, that's good. It's bad. Your heart is messed up. You're an adulterer. You're an idolater. But he gives more grace. And then he says, God resists the proud. That's a military term. 
was used of kind of like a soldier with shield and spear in hand, standing against you. So when we are giving in to our sinful cravings, God is opposed to you. He stands at odds with you. God is against you. Don't act that way. Don't act that way. When you respond to me with proud, you are my enemy. I am against you. But then the verse goes on to say, but he gives grace to the humble. So here is this God who we have countless times defied and been proud and arrogant and given into our lust and sinful desires. And God says, all you got to do is humble yourselves and I will put down my sword and shield. And I will give you grace. You will no longer be my enemy, but I will begin to stow blessing on you. It almost sounds too easy, doesn't it? So this begs the question, at least in my mind, what does humbling ourselves before the Lord look like? What does that mean when God says he gives grace to the humble? How can we say, Lord, yes, my heart is a problem. How do I respond to you in a way that pleases you? I'm I'm seeing these issues in my heart. I'm seeing where I'm giving in to my sinful cravings. How do I come before you in humility? Well, fortunately for us, good Dr. James lays out five different kind of steps or ways that we can respond in humility. So I'm going to rip through these fairly quickly. Five ways that we can respond in humility to God. Look at verse number seven. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. The first thing is this. Confess God's authority. Listen. The first step in humbling yourselves before God is acknowledging that he is God and you are not. That is the first step of humility. God You are God. I'm not. What does that mean? It means you get to make the rules. You get to call the shots. You are the master of the universe. You are the supreme authority. All sin is ultimately directed against you, and it is cosmic treason. Lord, you are God. I humble myself. I have done wrong before you. You are right. I am wrong. Truly humbling ourselves before the Lord means that we acknowledge that sin is not fundamentally an obstacle to my fulfilled life, but an offense to a holy God. So often we think of sin as making our life difficult. And does sin make your life difficult? Yes or no? Yes, it often does. But that's not fundamentally the problem with sin. The fundamental issue with sin is that it is against God. He is God. We need to have a vertical position, a vertical understanding of sin, not just a horizontal understanding of sin. Like, man, when when I'm not faithful to my spouse, it makes my marriage relationship difficult. Is that true? Yes or no? But ultimately, you're sinning against the one who bought you and created you and gives you life. That is the more serious offense. When we sin, the most offended party is always God. Every single time. Because he is the lawgiver. He is the one who has the right to command. So the first step in humbling ourselves is simply saying, God, you're in charge. I'm not. Second, look at verse 7 again. Resist the devil and he will flee. I would love to preach a whole message on this right now, but I can't. Number two, resist God's enemy. Not only do you confess God's authority, you must resist God's enemy. 
When you humble yourself before God, it means to make war against the things that he hates. Sometimes we wrongly believe that simply because we confess our sin, we have changed. Listen, confession is really critical. Confession is really important. You need to confess your sins. You need to own your sin and name your sin and tell God that you realize what it is. You need to do that. But just because you confess doesn't mean a thing if it doesn't walk out in your life. Confession is only the beginning. Dealing with our sin means we make war on it. We kind of know this instinctively, right? Like if it's pornography, it means you, you put the filters on the devices. Because you hate it. Like, I don't want that in my life. Get that out of my life. So you begin to take steps to say, I'm actually turning away from it. If it's materialism, maybe you cut up the credit cards. If it's angry outbursts, you learn to shut your mouth. When we say, God, this is sin, we actually begin to change in our life. We make war. People who are humbled by their sins begin to declare war on their sins. As the theologian John Owen once wisely said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Confession alone is not enough. You have to start resisting. Here's the question I want to ask you. Is there anything in your life that looks like war? Let me say it this way. Uh, and and th- this is a concern that I have. Um, in, in our modern 21st century church culture in America, and listen, I'm not down on being here. I'm thankful that we're here. This is where God has placed us, and we should try to be flourishing and fruitful in this environment. But my concern is often here we make Christianity extremely easy because we don't hate sin. Sure, we don't have persecution the way that some places in the world do. But in the church of Jesus Christ, particularly in America, we need to be a little tougher. We just need to be a little tougher. And what I mean by that is there should be people in our church, in the church at large, who are just saying, I hate sin. I hate it. I hate it. And my life is indicative that I hate it. And it shows in the way that I do battle against sin in my life. Listen, let me say this very plainly. Loving God means hating sin. You can't say that I love Jesus and just like tolerate sin in your life. Those things are antithetical. Loving God means hating the things that he is most opposed to. We need to be a people who when we humble ourselves before the Lord, we really do declare war on sin in our lives and say, Lord, I need to change. Would you show me how to root out these things that are going on in my life? Number three, desire God's presence. Look at verse number eight. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Instead of running from God and trying to call the shots in our lives, humbling ourselves, we must begin to desire God's nearness more than our sin. When this is true, when we desire God's nearness more than our sins, we start to say things like this. I don't care what else happens. I simply want to be right with God. Have you had seasons in your life where that has happened? 
where you're like, I don't care about the consequences that I face. I don't care about anything else. I simply want to be right with God. I think that's a mark of humility in our life. Where we begin to say the most important thing to me is not my comfort, it's not my convenience, it's being in sweet communion with my Savior. Let me ask you this question very clearly, very plainly, not unkindly. Are there areas in your life right now that are hindering your fellowship with the Lord? Are there things that as you think of right now in your heart, you're like, God doesn't, he's not pleased with that. I've just kind of been saying to that, to the Lord and the Holy Spirit, kind of shut up and leave me alone. I'm serving you with all these other things. Just kind of leave me alone on this one. This one's mine. This is my kind of pet sin. I stroke it. I feed it. I bring it to church with me. He's not that big or ugly or bad. He's really okay. God must think he's cute too because I do. And the Lord is saying, no, draw near to me. Come. He's inviting you right now. Put that little pet away and come. Draw near to me and he will draw near to you. He's, he's ready to respond to your humility for him. Number four, pursue God's transformation. Humbling ourselves before the Lord not only involves desire to fellowship with the Lord, but also a desire to be different in the future. In other words, real humility results in real change. Humility produces more than words, but a whole person transformation. Look at verse eight again. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In essence, James is saying, change the way you act with your hands. Change your hearts the way you feel. Change the way you think, you double-minded. Change everything. Humility produces a transformation in our life. If God has really gripped your heart, it will be evident in your actions. In one sense, in one sense, humility is terribly visible. When a person is humble, you see it in their life. It shows up in the transformation that they're experiencing. You can't say you be humble and there be no evidence of it in your life. Humility necessarily begins to change your hands, your heart, your mind. That's what God wants of us. If you say, I've been living by my cravings in certain areas in my life, which is true of all of us, we need to draw near to God. He will draw near to us. And then we need to say, Lord, I need cleansing. I don't want to be the same today as I was yesterday. I need to actually be different because I want to please you. And then finally, he says, maybe the most countercultural one of them all. Number five, lament God's displeasure. Did you read that as we were going through the passage when Rod was reading and like, whoa, hey, that's kind of weird. Look at verse number nine. Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. As Americans, we're not very good at this. We stink at lamenting and mourning and being wretched. It seems that in the United States, our sins often rest very lightly on our shoulders. Generally, we are adept at pointing out and feeling a sense of outrage at the sins of others, but we are not very good at feeling a sense of remorse and sorrow and lamentation about our own sins. Let me ask you this question that I was asking myself as I was going through this. It's simply this, when did you last weep? about your sin. When was the last time you mourned? Not because of the injustices in the world, which we should, right? 
right? Not because of the things that have been done to you, which we should, right? There's a proper sense of lamentation. There's a proper sense of mourning that should go on when there's loss and heartbreak and brokenness in the world. That's absolutely true. And we should be a people who weep with those who weep and mourn with those that mourn. But what James here is drawing our attention to this fact, he's saying, you should weep over your own heart's condition. You should be wretched about the sin that exists in your heart. You should mourn the fact that you have grieved a righteous and holy God and that he had to send his very son to rescue you from that plight. We should lament what God is displeased at. When were you last filled with sorrow because you had grieved the God who saved you? But here's the amazing thing. As bad as the diagnosis and the prognosis is, and as difficult and tough as the treatment is, James concludes with this wonderful, wonderful statement. Look at verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. That is a promise. God is saying, as bad as the heart disease is that is in your chest, as awful as the prognosis is, as difficult as the treatment is, if you will simply humble yourself before him, the treatment works 100% of the time. Humble yourself before the Lord and the God of heaven promises that he will exalt you. So how can this be? How can it possibly be? It just seems so easy. Our hearts are so bad and all we have to do is acknowledge that fact. Just say, yeah, I agree with what the Bible says. God, we're on the same page. That's all we have to do. And God says that he will exalt us. The answer is yes. You say, how? How, Ryan? How is that impossibly good news possibly true? Here's the answer. Before the world was even created, the creator of the universe himself hatched a plan. And he said, you know what? I see what's going to happen to the hearts of men. When Adam and Eve fall, everybody's hearts are going to plunge and the DNA of the human race is going to be corrupted. Oh, but I'm not going to leave them that way. I will send my son into the world and he will come and rescue heart-diseased, sin-sick people like them by laying down his life on the cross. I will send the good physician, the great physician himself, to heal the brokenness and heal the sin-sickness of my people. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. Yet he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sickness. He carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But listen, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, and the punishment of our peace was on him. And listen carefully, church, and we are healed by his wounds. Oh, my heart is sick. My heart is diseased. My heart is, is corrupt. And yet Jesus Christ, the Savior, came to earth. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. He rose victoriously over the grave. And he simply says this, if you trust in me, you will be healed. 
Humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord. Cry out to him and tell him your need of him. And you will be exalted because Jesus took our sin sickness on himself. So if your heart is angry, my friend, Jesus came to heal you. And if your heart is afraid, Jesus came to heal you. If your heart is proud, Jesus came to heal you. If your heart is filled with shame or lust or greed or whatever it is, Jesus came to heal you. As the Savior hung on the cross, some in the crowd cried out, He saved others. Let him save himself. The irony was in that very moment, he was saving others by not saving himself. Listen, the great physician is not only the administrator of the cure for our sin sickness, he is the cure. He doesn't just give the cure, he is the cure. He's not just the doctor who comes in and gives the injection, he's the injection himself. And he longs to heal you. So here, as I close this morning, is simply this, will you be healed? And if you've never trusted in that amazing sacrifice on your behalf, and you're listening to the words that James says, and you're like, that's me, that's me, my heart is messed up. I need to be healed. Come today to the great physician and he will heal you. Humble yourself before him. Just kneel down and say, oh Lord, I need to be rescued from this thing in my chest. Will you save me? And Christ died. He's already done what is necessary. He's accepting new patients and he takes your insurance. I guarantee it. Come to him and he will receive you. If you're already in the physician's care. But you know that disease has crept up a little bit. There's some areas in your life where you've been resisting the gentle touch of the great physician. Come have a checkup. He'll get out a scalpel. He'll, cut, he'll gently cut that away. He loves you. He died for you. And he came to cure you in ways that you can't cure yourself. So whether you do not know him or you've known him for a long time, will you simply come to the great physician and receive your healing? He himself took our sickness on that tree. And by his wounds, you have been healed. Can we pray together? Lord, I pray that we would respond appropriately to the wonderful sacrifice of the Savior. Father, I simply don't have words to portray the beauty of what Jesus has done for sin-sick people like me. Oh God, I'm not who I am because you took my shame and sin and wretched heart on the tree. I thank you, God. I thank you for these dear people here today. Thank you for all of them who have been revolutionized by the work of the Savior. And I pray that if there are some here today that are sick in their heart and they know it, would you draw near to them as they draw near to you? Would you grant them humility to bow before the Savior? In the precious name of Christ, I pray. Amen.